Okay, good morning, everyone. Well, actually, it's nearly good, it's nearly good afternoon, but anyway, good morning. It's good to be with you. Uh, yeah, I'm da- I am Dave's dad. I'm not the generic dad, okay, or some sort of, you know, everyman dad or whatever. No, just an ordinary one, so. Hey, it's good to be with you. Uh, we're in Acts chapter 12. We're going to read um, a fair bit of that chapter, a story about Peter. This is God's word. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick! Get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself. And they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said, and then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. And ending at verse 19, the Lord will bless his truth to our hearts for Christ's sake. Amen. Um, I have a friend, an older colleague of mine in the ministry, and over the years I have been his IT consultant. I find that it is possible to be an IT consultant if you only know a very little bit more than the person whom you're trying to help. And so over the years, at various crises in his life, when things are not going as they should be going with his computer, I get a phone call, I go down to his house, I sort out his problems. Usually I manage to do so. And I got a phone call from him the other day, and I went down to his house and eventually managed to fix 
what he had done. But when, when I came along, he said, well, grab a cup of coffee after we get this done. And then he said, don't let me let you go without telling you about the miracles. So I thought, well, this sounds interesting. So after I'd fixed his computer and came downstairs, and his wife made a cup of coffee, and we started to talk about things. And then his wife said to him, tell him about the miracles. The miracles involved two locks that disappeared from gates in the garden and a hearing aid which are not the sorts of things you normally associate with miracle stories. The locks I'll not get into. A grandchild had managed to take them away and they disappeared and then miraculously reappeared. But let's tell, let me tell you the story about the hearing aid. So um, he discovered one day, um, later in, in the day, that he, he, one of his hearing aids was missing. And he thought, I wonder, what have I done with that? And it was the day that he had been searching for the locks. And so he'd been all around the house in and out of the car, all around the garden, in the garage, looking for these locks. And somewhere along the way, he thought, I've lost the hearing aid. So they searched the car again, they searched the house again, they searched the garden again, they searched the garage again. The hearing aid was not to be found anywhere. And then he had the bright idea, well, of course, he said, during the course of searching for the locks, I was looking in the brown bin. Maybe it fell into the brown bin. The brown bin. They left it till the following day. The following day, he and his wife upended the contents of the brown bin and searched through it. Now, I'm thinking to myself, all the stuff goes into the brown bin. He said, it wasn't too bad. It was mostly just grass. But anyway, they searched through the full contents of the brown bin. No hearing aid. Oh, I'm going to have to get in touch and get another hearing aid, he said. So the following morning, before he had phoned to sort out the hearing aid, he went out into the garden, over to where the bins were, I think to connect the hose up to hose the garden or something like that. I can't remember exactly why. And as he came over and looked down beside the brown bin, what was sitting on the ground? The hearing aid. And he said, I know it wasn't there the day before. It's a miracle. It couldn't have been there. I'd have seen it if it was there. Emptied the whole contents of the bin out. It wasn't there. There it was sitting on the ground beside it. I couldn't not have seen it. It's a miracle. Now, I don't know whether you count that as a miracle or not, but the interesting thing about the story is it probably highlights what we really think about miracles, that miracles are things that happen for which we don't have an explanation. How did it get there? Why did I not see it the day before? Did it come here by some strange effect? Is there a jackdaw living in my garden doing the opposite to what jackdaws normally do, returning things rather than taking them away? I don't know, but it's a miracle. And that's kind of how we think about miracles. Hold that thought while we think about the story we just read. We've been looking at the birth and early development of the church, trying to learn from it. We started with a series of firsts, the first church, the first miracle, the first persecution, the first martyr. Then we looked at how the church began to relate to the immediate neighborhood in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. And today, we have the last story in those neighborhood set of stories. Because when we return to this series after the summer, 
we will find ourselves far from the place of origin in the church, no longer in Jerusalem, but now in Antioch. And through Antioch and from Antioch, we will travel throughout the Mediterranean world to the center of one of the greatest empires the world has ever seen, not in Asia, but in Europe. So today's final Jerusalem story is also the final story in the book of Acts in the life of one key Christian leader. That's Peter. Last week, we watched as through Peter's ministry, the gospel came and the spirit fell in the home of a ranking Roman soldier. It was an unbelievable moment. It was just like Boris Johnson winning seats in the Red Wall constituencies in the north of England. Something happened in a Gentile home that should not happen there. But it did. And it is an amazing story. It was not what was expected. But now, back in Jerusalem, Peter experiences something very different. Herod Agrippa I arrests and beheads James, the brother of John the Apostle. One of the sons of thunder is silent. Herod Agrippa I was a populist. And when he discovered that people liked what he did to James, he decided to up the ante. Peter is arrested and thrown in jail to await trial after Passover. He is being kept in a high security prison, probably in the Antonia Fortress, which was part of Herod's palace. He's chained to the wall, handcuffed to two guards, whilst another two guards are on the doors. There were 16 in total, split up into four squads of four, and they probably did six-hour shifts right round the clock. Escape was impossible. Death was certain. On the evening before the trial, Peter is prodded violently in his sleep by a visitor. Light floods the cell. His chains fall off and his shackles are released. He is told to dress and put his shoes on. He is invited to follow the visitor. And Peter walks with the visitor past the guards, out through the iron gate of the prison, which just swings open as they approach it. He follows the visitor to the end of the street, at which point the visitor disappears. Peter makes his way to a home where friends have been praying for him. With some difficulty, he gains admission, tells them what has happened, encourages them to spread the word, and then leaves Jerusalem to become effectively an itinerant for the rest of his life. It's a great story. It is the Christian equivalent of escape from Alcatraz because what happened is in our normal parlance, a miracle in the same sense in which finding a hearing aid, which you had searched everywhere for in a place that you'd already looked in, is a miracle. It's a miracle. Something happened here which shouldn't have normally happened. You didn't escape from the Antonia Fortress. The guards who failed to retain Peter were tortured and executed themselves. 
That's why you didn't escape. It was in the interest of the guards to ensure that you didn't. It's one of the reasons why in another story in the book of Acts, whenever Paul is in Philippi and there's an earthquake and the walls of the prison fall down, that the person in charge of the jail is about to commit suicide because it would be better to take your own life than to have yourself tortured and executed by the Roman state because you'd lost your prisoners. People didn't escape from prison. Escape was impossible. Death was certain. We're talking about Herod Agrippa I here. On one occasion, for public sport, he executed over 1,400 criminals in one day. What was one lousy disciple in comparison to that? Escaping from prison and escaping from death at the hands of Herod Agrippa I were a miracle. This was something that didn't happen. It is so much something that didn't happen that you can see that in the story. Because in the story, first of all, the man who experienced it didn't believe it. Peter was fast asleep when the angel of the Lord entered his cell. Obviously, Peter was a good sleeper. Years, no doubt, of working in boats in the middle of the night and storms on the Sea of Galilee had left him a good sleeper. He was fast asleep. He had to be struck by the angel. It's the same verb used in that verse to describe what the angel did to Peter that is used later in some of the verses we didn't read when Herod Agrippa himself is struck to death by an angel later on in the chapter. Same verb. This was a violent event. Peter wasn't easy to wake when he was asleep. Now, whether he was still groggy or what, we don't know. But from that point on, until he was standing in a street he knew really well, some distance away from the prison, up until that point, Peter thought he was dreaming. Now, that's hard to believe from our distance, considering the physicality of what happened to him. Chains and shackles fell off him. He had to put clothes on. How do you put clothes on and imagine that you're dreaming? Well, I guess that you could. He had to walk and negotiate his way through the corridors of the prison. Iron gates yield in front of him without keys. He walks up a street he knew only too well and he thought all of it was a dream. Until in verse 12 it says, then Peter came to himself and said, now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. He thought he was dreaming. He didn't think there was an angel in the cell leading him out. I mean, be honest. Would you? Pete Gregg in Red Moon Rising tells a brilliant story about uh, a guy called Gareth who had been coming to church for a while and, uh, but there was no sign that he was in any way beginning to open up to God but, but church was beginning to impact him and he went to work one day. He worked in a, uh, a large DIY store and uh, when he went to work one morning, he prayed probably for the first time in his life and he said, Lord, if you're real, would you speak to me today? 
And as he was working in the DIY store during the day, a little old lady appeared as if out of nowhere from behind one of the shelves, shelves looked at him in the face and said, God really loves you. And then she disappeared. And he came home to the friends that he was living with in the house where he was staying, and he was buzzing about it. He said, you know, I... God really spoke to me today. He said, I don't think it was a little old lady. I think it was an angel. This was greeted with a fair degree of cynicism by his friends in the house, okay, as you might expect. And later that evening, one of the girls who was staying in the house was going to a private party in the town. And she she went to the party and came to the door and there was a couple of security guys in the door and let her in and so on. And while she was uh, in, in the party, with, sitting with some of her friends, a, a man walked over to her, whom she didn't know and had never met before, and looked at her in the face and said, you look very sad. One of your close friends has just become a Christian, and it's time you became a Christian too. And she was kind of taken aback at this. Who's this getting all kind of heavy in like, what's supposed to be a party and night out? She said, who are you? And he said, you don't need to know that. And some of her friends were sitting around with her. A few of them were behind him and they were kind of looking at her, laughing and making faces and sort of whispering to her, weirdo, weirdo. So in the midst of all of this, he disappeared. And she couldn't find him for the rest of the night. And and she went over to ask the security man on the door, described this guy and said, look, did you see him leaving? And they said, didn't see him leaving, didn't see him come in. Don't think anybody of that description actually came in here. So then she went home to tell this story to figure out, had she just met an angel as well? Weird. Would you have said it was an angel or just a little old lady? And some other kind of weirdo who managed to turn up at a private function and get in and get out past the, past the security men without anybody seeing them. What would you have said? An angel or not? The point is, that even in the middle of times when God is at work among us, sometimes we miss it completely because we look for alternative explanations. We find it hard to believe that God might do something miraculous, that there might really be a miracle in our lives or in our experience. And we search for human explanations or other explanations for what is actually happening to us, even when all the time it is the Lord himself. Peter was going through the motions, putting on his clothes, walking out of the prison cell, going up a street of Jerusalem that he knew so well, saying to himself, I'm dreaming, I'm dreaming. This can't be real, I'm dreaming. We do that, don't we? A number of years ago when the Holy Spirit started to work in my life in ways that I had never experienced before, when I would be in worship and when I would maybe go to pray with someone, this really strange thing started to happen in that my hands got really warm, my face got really warm, and uh, it, it was a bit weird. So I assumed that I had developed some medical condition of some sort, and I actually Googled to try and find out what would these symptoms, what would these things be symptoms of, okay, to the doctors in the room, you can have a private laugh to yourselves, but honestly, I did. I thought, this, there has this, this can't be normal, because it was happening so often to me, 
and always in the context of worship and usually in the context of praying with other people or when God really seemed to be very present. And it was only really reluctantly after quite a period of time and after seeing God show up in response to some of the prayers that were prayed when this phenomenon was happening in my life that I finally came to accept that it wasn't a medical condition, that it was God. It was a sign of his presence. It was an experience of his blessing. It was giving me something that I had to give to somebody else. But that wasn't my first explanation. My first explanation was there must be something wrong with me. The man who experienced the miraculous intervention of God in his life didn't believe it himself. He thought he was dreaming. Is that true for us? Are there situations in our lives into which God has been speaking, genuinely been working, and we've been trying to explain it away, reduce the tension, not think too much about what it would mean if this really was God doing this? The man who experienced the miracle didn't believe it. The people who prayed for him didn't expect it. There can be no doubt in the sincerity of the Jerusalem Christians who met in Mary's home. It says in verse five, so Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. But when Peter turned up at the door of Mary's home and the Gentile maid comes in to tell the people inside that Peter was outside, we read in verse 15, you're out of your mind, they told her. And when she kept insisting that it was so, they said it must be his angel. There's an exact parallel between Peter and the people who were praying for him. Peter experiences God intervening in his circumstances by an angel coming and releasing him from prison. And he says, I'm dreaming. And the people who were praying for Peter think that when Peter appears at the door, it's not Peter at all, it's a ghost. And we'd do that too, wouldn't we? Say she'd seen a ghost. These people were praying with no real expectation. And can you blame them? James was already dead. Cavalry didn't come for him. Peter was in a high security prison. Agrippa was not like the Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin needed somebody else's permission to put someone to death to bring about the ultimate sanction on someone that they had judged against. They, they couldn't take those decisions for themselves. Agrippa was not in that position. He had the power to execute prisoners and everybody knew he was in a mood to satisfy the mob. So I wonder what those people who were gathered in Mary's home were actually praying for. You can kind of imagine it. Praying that Peter would have strength for the ordeal praying for his wife and his children, giving thanks to God for the testimony of a life well lived in service of the kingdom. You can kind of imagine the sorts of things that they were praying for. I don't know, but if they prayed for Peter's release, they didn't really expect those prayers to be answered. Otherwise, why would they have been so shocked when Peter was at the door? 
Now, I know this prayer thing is difficult. James says in the first chapter of his letter, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. That's really hard saying, isn't it? Because if we're honest, very often when we're asking the Lord for something, we probably don't actually believe that he will do it. And James, is James saying then, well, if that's the case, you know, what's the point in the prayer? You're not going to receive it anyway if you don't really believe that God is going to do this. And just in case we try to let ourselves off by thinking that the people who achieve that state are very special kind of people, people who end up being described by the church as saints or whatever, James goes on to say later in chapter five of his letter, Elijah was a human being, even as we are. Just like us, he prayed earnestly that it would not rain and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Elijah was an ordinary guy. That's what James said. We're no different from him. He asked God to stop the rain for three and a half years. God stopped the rain. Now, we need to remember that Elijah wasn't praying for God to stop the rain because he just built a house on a floodplain and he didn't want it to be flooded. He was praying for it not to rain for three and a half years so that God would, God's judgment would come to his people in the hope that his people would repent. He had a kingdom reason for the prayer. He was asking a big ask. Who comes to God with expectancy when we ask him for kingdom advance? Who is praying the big prayers? It's so easy to pray small prayers. You know, and we do it all the time. You're thinking about Northern Ireland in the summer, you know, and what usually happens here. What, what do we pray for? Do we, do we pray that all of a sudden bonfires will become family-friendly events? Could pray for that. Or we could pray that God would usher in the day when the kingdoms of this world would become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ and that he would reign forever and ever. We could pray the small prayer or we could pray the big prayer. And mostly when you look at the history of people and the life of prayer throughout the scriptures and throughout God's dealings with men and women, what you usually find is not that people ask for too much, but that they ask for too little. There's an old hymn, a verse of which goes like this, Thou art coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring, for his strength and power are such, none can ever ask too much. This story about Peter and the fact that those who were praying didn't expect the miracle to happen probably demonstrates that their prayers were small. In some ways, we can be comforted by the story. 
We can be comforted by the fact that even the early disciples who had lived with the Lord and who had seen what the touch of his hand could do, even they struggled to trust in the power of the Lord. We can be comforted by that. The people who live much closer to these events find it as hard to believe and trust as sometimes we do. We can also take comfort from the fact that their lack of faith didn't prevent the Lord from acting. Even though they didn't expect Peter to walk up to the door, didn't prevent the Lord from sending his angel and opening the prison and setting him free. But surely we should be challenged by it. Surely we should be challenged by it. That if the Lord is at work in our own generation, we should not be trying to explain it away by ordinary things. We should be looking out for and seeking to discern the lines of what he's doing in our lives and the life of this fellowship and the life of our city and naming it for what it is. But as well as that, surely we should be praying big prayers of expectation that the kingdom is going to advance. What do you do when you face the impossible? That's where they were in the church of Jerusalem. What do you do when you face the impossible? Sometimes I find that's the hardest situation to pray any prayer of any kind. Sometimes if it's personal to me, the only kind of prayers that ever get prayed in those circumstances are prayers other people pray for me because I can't pray for myself. Or sometimes when I do pray, I try to break it down into small things that I think the Lord might do. I can't make the big ask. can't bring myself to say it because of the possible disappointment if it doesn't work out. So I break it down into smaller things that actually might happen anyway. And so if I ask the Lord for those and they do happen, I can take it as an answer to prayer, but it might have happened anyway. Or I could make the big ask. The people in the church in Jerusalem could have asked the Lord to set Peter free. And he would have done it. But their surprise suggests that they didn't. They missed that amazing opportunity. Maybe it's time for the big ask. In your life, in the life of this fellowship, in the history of our nation, at this point in the history of the universe and the world, maybe this is the moment to make the big ask, to invite God to do among us what only God can do, and then to wait on him to do it. Elijah was an ordinary guy, just like us, but he made the big ask.